your grace. Be with us, guide us, search our hearts, Lord, and know our minds, and bring to our remembrance, Lord, if there's anything against you, and turn our hearts back to you. In the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Give me a moment as I need to enable something first. Today we're actually following through uh, the reading plan that we have and uh, today's session is taken from the uh, Genesis chapter 25, a question about uh, Saul, sorry, uh, Esau and uh, Jacob. And um, I've titled this The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, there is a book, uh, quite a classic, uh, written on this topic, The Pursuit of Holiness. In fact, quite a number of people have actually uh, written on this topic. Uh, and so you might be wondering, what does uh, Esau and Jacob and their conflict over food have to do with holiness? And why does uh, Hebrews then point back to that, talking about godlessness, sexual immorality, and uh, holiness uh, being tied in together? Now, before I, I do this, uh, let me ask this question. Um, what is it that's worth waiting for? What are you willing to wait for? And how long would you wait? I remember asking myself this question last year during the Chinese New Year. And the reason why was because I was waiting in traffic. Very long traffic. <laughs> uh, at times almost uh, too long. And I was thinking, really, is it worth it? Is it worth going through and plowing through all the miles in order to go back to see all his relatives? Well, yeah, in a way, I eventually uh, uh, got my answer. I, I, I do appreciate this. And sometimes my, my friends look at me or my wife looks at me and says, you are going there just for the food, is it? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Pranakan, so when you go down to Malacca and you have uh, Malacca Pranakan food, it's very different from Penang Pranakan food but it's not really about the food. It's about the fellowship and the friendship that we have. Uh, more familiarly, some of you are, uh, might have seen a lot of this happening. Uh, it's a queue for some or other boba tea uh, fad that's going on. Uh, I see some of our younger folks here like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my nephews uh, came back from Australia and uh, asked him, you know, you like uh, you like uh, uh, boba tea or whatever you want to call it? Say, yeah, sure. It's a, it's a cultural event there. And I said, what do you mean? He says, yeah, you know, on all our high streets, you sometimes have five, six, seven of these tea shops right next to each other and everyone is queuing. Uh, every single shop has a queue and you almost wait half an hour to one hour just to get a cup of tea. And so I ask, is it really worth it? What are the things worth waiting for? And what does deferring gratification or, or resisting uh, this have to do with this question of holiness or godliness? 
or even for that matter, what is holiness? Uh, this word holy, uh, kadosh, uh, is used almost 800 times in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament. But it is never really clearly defined. Uh, God doesn't say holiness means this. In fact, it is given in the context of uh, situations and sometimes given as a comparison. And so, what is holiness? Why does God demand it of us? And how do we, as a church, uh, pursue this? These are the three main questions I want to deal with. What is holiness? Uh, why does God expect it so much of us? And how do we, as a community, as a church, try and deal with this? Now, this question about deferred gratification or waiting for something good is not a new problem. 1972, uh, a man by the name of uh, Wilford Welsh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, from University of Stanford, did the marshmallow test. Uh, some of you may, uh, may be familiar with this. If you have watched it before, great. But if it's not, it's a, it's a good reminder. Now, the test involves this. A group of children are brought in and they are given a marshmallow, one marshmallow. And they are told, if you're willing to wait, and I'm told it's about 15 minutes, if you're willing to wait 15 minutes, I'll give you another marshmallow. If you're willing to wait. And so here's, uh, here's a repeat of the test, not, not the Stanford one, but one that did exactly the same. Now, um, further analysis of that particular uh, study has shown uh, that there are several factors that affect whether or not the child would actually eat it. Uh, maybe you can take a few guesses yourself before I actually tell you what the answer is. Uh, let me give you certain scenarios. They make, there is a huge difference between when a person who is known to the child uh, makes the promise as a person who is uh, not known. In other words, a trust between the person making the promise and the person who is hearing this is one of the factors that affects whether the study works according to that factor. So one is the relationship between uh, the giver of the promise and the receiver of the promise. The second factor that apparently affects this particular study is um, <clears throat> the value from that derived promise. 
In other words, if you put a child there who has never had a marshmallow before and doesn't know what it tastes like or uh, has never really encountered it before, uh, their susceptibility to be able to withstand that longer period is a lot less because to them it's like, well, you know, I don't know what this, what this, what is it worth. And so the, the value of the promise is diminished for some of them because they don't understand the value. So the first one is the trust between the giver of the promise. And the second one is the value of the promise itself. Is it worth what I think it is worth? And the third and the final factor is one where uh, the person has no inclination to exercise any self-control whatsoever. Right? So in the last one, you had that child there who, even before the woman could actually stop saying, you know, you just wait, she just popped it in. And she started eating it. Now that's psychological. And that's a study uh, that's uh, done online. So if you want to check and verify this, search for marshmallow test, uh, Stanford University. And I'm told the study was done in 1972 and the subsequent studies. But... How does this apply to holiness? And what does this have to do with uh, uh, Jacob and Esau? Now, uh, you recall the text in verse 29 says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. <laughs> he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. And you just heard the text just now. It says there, Jacob said to him, uh, sell me your birthright. And if you sell me your birthright, then I'll consider giving it to you. And what we find is that uh, Esau automatically says, what good is the birthright to me if I die? Okay, it's, I'm paraphrasing it as it is. What good is the birthright to me if I die? Now, you have to ask yourself, what is the value of a meal? What is the value of that stew? What is the value of the birthright that is being given away? Now, ancient Near East culture uh, understands it in a slightly different way. Most of us, when we look at this particular uh, uh, question, if you're a typical pragmatic Asian, yeah, betul, betul, correct. No point having a birthright if I die right now. The whole point of a birthright is that I inherit something if I die, I don't inherit it anyway. It kind of makes sense, except that in the ancient Near East culture, that would be seen as totally abhorrent. Several reasons. One, the birthright is not just about asset, it is about a spiritual blessing. And in the case of uh, Jacob and Esau, they were receiving the blessing of Isaac, who received the blessing from Abraham, who was being promised many nations would come through you and you would be rulers, you know, from your offspring would be kings. So the spiritual birthright is one. But the second one is, uh, ancient Near East practice was that the eldest son in the family, in a patriarchal uh, community, was given double portion compared to the rest. Now, if you have 12 brothers, uh, what it means is, when the father gives his inheritance, uh, the wealth will be divided into 13. And the elder son will receive two portions. 
So the larger the number of brothers, the lesser the consequence. But if you have two, right? If you just have two amongst you, two brothers, uh, then the property is divided into three and the eldest gets two-thirds and the younger gets one-third. Now, you need to remember Jacob and Esau are twins. So the, you know, just by a matter of a few minutes, a few seconds, uh, one gets more. So maybe there was this huge conflict between the two of them and uh, Jacob we understand as being a supplanter, one who wants to take over. But there is, in a way, a fulfillment of the prophecy given before he was born. Now, all this narrative doesn't say that what Jacob did is good. Neither does it say what Esau did uh, is particularly bad, except that at the end of that particular passage, it says there that Esau despised his birthright by doing this. Now, the word despised is not to be taken in an in a emotive, uh, emotional kind of like, oh, I despise you, I hate you, I... Uh, not that way. To, to look, at, uh, look at it from a point of English, it's very similar to the word contempt. Uh, contempt can mean, I, I, I really, you are contemptible, you're disgusting and all that stuff. But the legal meaning of contempt is, uh, for example, when you say contempt of court, uh, when you're in contempt of court, it means that you have disregarded and disrespected the court. So when, when the text says uh, Esau despised, what he was doing was he had basically shown uh, disrespect and dishonor to the birthright that was promised to him. And you have to bear in mind this is the line of Abraham and the line of David, and our inheritance as well as Christians. So what really was that bowl of stew worth? Uh, to Esau, it was just food for his stomach. But for other people, it was essentially the promise of salvation and eternity through that particular line. I then want to bring this to us. In the moments when we are trying to make decisions uh, about the quick and the easy, the shortcut, uh, and, and uh, you know, corruption and uh, greasing the palm and all these other things are in a way shortcuts. Our inability to defer uh, that gratification from what we want is the challenge in mind. What is it worth? Is it worth the immediate financial gain or the satisfaction of your desire at that time? Or is it worth the spiritual loss of identity and relationship with God when we do this? And that is this question of where holiness comes into play. Because holiness is a matter of God. In fact, out of the 800 descriptions of holiness, one of its primary descriptions of holiness is holiness is central to the character and nature of God. Everywhere you see in the, in the prophets and revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Holy is the Lord and high and enthroned above. And this word holy is to indicate he is unique, he is separate, 
He is high above all things. But not only is He holy, He is also calling us to be a holy people. Now, let me continue on in the text. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 uh, puts this anecdote about Esau and it says, Don't be godless like Esau. Now, this is uh, towards the end of a phrase, right, uh, where it had been mentioned, uh, be holy and uh, seek to be you know, like God. Uh, let me find that passage and read that out to us. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Uh, verse 14, Hebrews 12, verse 14. Make every effort, effort, huh? Uh, to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So immediately after this praise uh, comes this particular uh, verse in 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Now you can't really say that uh, Esau is sexually immoral. But in a way, he was uh, sexually immoral in the sense that his idol, his idolatry uh, caused him to basically treat many other things as idols and not God. There is a phrase in the Old Testament that says, their stomach is their God. And their stomach is sometimes literal in their appetites, but in a way, it's, really, it's revealing their own desires and their fleshly desires, that's their God. They don't really care about you. All they want is to satisfy their appetites. And so God is irrelevant. Their stomach themselves, that's who God is. And I want to bring back the marshmallow test into this picture again. In all of this, uh, when Esau sold his uh, birthright or his inheritance for a single meal, uh, in a way, he did not trust the promise giver. He wasn't trusting the promise giver. And it wasn't really about uh, Isaac's promise. It was the promise that was conveyed from Abraham to Isaac to him, God himself. He didn't trust uh, that what was promised was going to happen. Neither did he value what that inheritance was worth. You know, you, you notice some of the children in that video, they are nibbling at the marshmallow. Uh, they take a pinch of it, they test, you know, all that stuff, and some take small bites out of it. But sometimes our inability to remain holy is affected by our inability to imagine or to, to know what heaven is like or what being in the kingdom now in a relationship with God is like. So here's the challenge. It's hard for someone to live a life of holiness if they've never tasted what does it mean uh, to be in relationship with God. But part of the reason why they don't enter into that relationship with God is because of this third one, which is they don't intend to have or exercise any self-denial. They couldn't be bothered. A case in point, I had a friend who uh, went uh, from Sunday school, was in the church pretty much the whole time, 
went to college and we were all a very tight and close-knit bunch of people. Then we went to university and uh, all grew up and I started working and I was working in London for a period of time. And this old friend of mine who used to be one of these Sunday school kids that I used to teach came up. And one of the questions I asked her was, how's your faith? And, a question, and the question kind of stumped her and stopped her for a while. And her response was, I don't know, I guess it's there. Uh, but I don't really have time for it. I said, what do you mean I don't have time for it? He says, well, you know, God tells us right, to be holy and to obey His commandments. And that means, you know, uh, no sex, no drinking, no gambling, no fun, basically. Because her idea of holiness and godliness was effectively follow these particular rules that are no fun whatsoever. And the whole purpose of following those rules was so that you could be you know, self-righteous or holier than thou. And therefore, she avoided it. She said, you know, I've got a friend. I, I kind of like, like him, love him. I probably might uh, end up marrying him. And yeah, we're, we're sleeping together. We're, staying, we're sharing the same bed. Uh, and I like my drinks. You know, I do get plastered once in a while. And, and at the end of that conversation was, I think church was nice. It was good for the fellowship. But God's not really in my life at this point in time. Maybe when I hit 50 or 60 and I'm approaching the end of life, that's when I'll look for God. That's how that conversation ended. And by the way, she didn't get married to the guy that she was hanging out with. And so we do have those type of situations where God is absolutely not in their radar, they're not interested whatsoever. Some have tasted what the kingdom is like and are willing to wait, but some do not know what the kingdom of God is like and that relationship with God is like. And so for them, this doesn't really work. And some don't even know God and says, really? Is there a heaven? Is there a relationship to be obtained from this? And so for them to defer any sense of self-gratification is very difficult. These are three of the challenges that we are required to face with. Hebrews uh, continues in this vein where it says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Uh, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, as I mentioned, there are about 800 def uh, times where this word holy is used in the Bible. And so when we ask this question, okay, God calls us to be holy and He wants us to be holy or demands that we be holy because He Himself is holy and to be an image reflection of what is holy, uh, to be an image reflector of God is therefore to reflect holiness to others. But what is holiness? What does holy mean? So let me ask you, what do you think holiness means? You know, for some people in, uh, in many parts of churches, they say holiness means your skirt must be below the knees. Uh, for some people, holiness means spaghetti strap tabole. For some people, holiness means you must bathe as many times as possible. For some people, holiness means, um, you know, if I have bad thoughts, uh, don't come for communion. 
or if I am feeling particularly unclean for whatever reason, I just did a shady deal, or I, I, I've just had my monthly friend uh, come into the scene, or, or something or other, I'm unholy, uh, therefore, cannot. To some extent, there is some truth, some. But when you move down that path, you are very close to becoming like one of the Pharisees with many, many rules about holiness or one of our local, you know, Malaysian scenes. Lah. This cannot, that cannot, you know, uh, until, until life is unbearable. You either go on the side of legalism or you go on the other side where holiness is absolutely impossible. But here's the thing, holiness, uh, according to the Bible dictionary, uh, where it collates the concordance and looks at all the different uh, definitions of holiness in the context in which it's given, quite simply put, is morally blameless. A morally blameless uh, person who is separated from sin and consecrated to God. Okay, separated from sin, consecrated to God, the separation to God and, uh, a, and in, in holiness is also conduct that is befitting those who are so separated. Conduct that is befitting those who are so separated to God. Now, in the ancient Near East, if you were a Levite and you were involved in the temple work, uh, the the knives that you use were considered holy. Why? Because they were set apart, consecrated for use, and used only for the purpose in which it was given, which is for the sacrificial system. You don't go and take that knife and go and cut bawang. You know, you don't, don't take that same knife and you go and use it to basically uh, cook uh, your own dinner or lunch or whatever. Okay, so consecration means it is set apart and it is used specifically for what God has given. In other words, to be holy is to live and to live your entire life in conformance to how God would want it to be. That's what separation and consecration means. It therefore means, right, you cannot have a situation where I am dedicated to God but I continue with my other practices. So if you're a gangster, you know, and you say like, you, 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 you go and extort money from people and you take a million dollars off somebody and you say, okay, I got this one million, one hundred thousand I give to the church. The church might thank you for it, <laughs> but it is not consecration to God. There is nothing that we do in that where that is holy. And in fact, the giving to church doesn't make you holy. And I say this to some of my friends uh, who think that if I give more to the church, the Lord will bless me and uh, overlook my sins. Uh, it doesn't work that way. To answer the question, why do I need to uh, strive to be holy in the way that the writer of Hebrews says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy because he answers that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
And if you really want to think what is the treasure or the promise that we're given, it is the ability to see God, be with God, and He is our inheritance. The Lord God Himself is our inheritance. Is our inheritance. But holiness is also an aspect. You know, in many parts of the Bible, it says, for example, when uh, the bearers of the ark accidentally touch the ark, they are struck down dead because of the holiness of God strikes out at them. It's almost like looking at the sun and realizing that the sun, although it is bright and wonderful and beautiful from a distance, if you go too close and you go there without protection, without the necessary shielding, you will hang us. You get fried up. You will basically get destroyed. And so here's the thing. Holiness is something which God gives to us. And I'd like us to remember this. In the Old Testament, they were taught what God does in terms of ritual holiness to make you ritually holy, it makes you holy. But the moment something unclean touches you, you become unclean. All of this they understood until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, when he touched the leper who was unclean, the leper became clean. So really the source of holiness is not ourselves. The source of holiness is God himself. Only God makes things holy. But it's a twofold process. On the one hand, God makes us holy, but on the other hand, we, like farmers, have to plant the seed for it to grow. God causes the sun and the rain to shine on it. So holiness is one thing that God causes, but like the farmer, we are in partnership to work with God towards that holiness. Are you intentionally living that life of holiness? And so I answer the third part of my question. What is the church's role in holiness? What is the role of the church in creating holiness? If you're called to be salt and light, if you're called to be encouragers, if you're called to be responsible and accountable to each other in the same way that uh, Cain and Abel were supposed to be, then the church in its accountability, in its discipleship, calls everyone to holiness. In fact, the Methodists were formerly known as the holiness movement. John Wesley was known as the guy who started up this holiness movement in his holiness club. And how did he enforce this? He did this by asking his pastors and his leaders almost daily every time he met them, what sin have you committed today that you need to confess of and that you need to turn away from and therefore intentionally live a life of godliness and righteousness? So let me end in conclusion. <clears throat> Your God is holy. Many parts of the Bible remind us, Leviticus 19, Exodus 20, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And God himself calls us to be holy, for I, your Lord, your God, am a holy God. So we need to really internalize this. It's not something just mentally in our head. It's something which we need to intentionally exercise as a partnership in God. 
You, O Lord, are holy and you make all things holy and I desire to be holy. Will you help me uh, to be holy? Two, pursuing holiness. Now, uh, when the writer of Hebrew says, make every effort, uh, other translations put it pursue. In other words, it's an active, continuous verb. It's in a way never achievable. You will not achieve it in this lifetime from your own exercise, but it is a movement towards it. So if you feel like I do sometimes, you know, I've been a Christian for donkey's ages and I know all this and it's ingrained my brain, but why do I still fall into sin? It's okay. The fact that you are reminded of it and you, you mourn your sinful state is the fact that the Holy Spirit continues to speak to your conscience and tells you keep on walking in this particular direction. So I, I wish to comfort you if you feel that in all these years I've continued to have this sin that I've not been able to overcome. That's okay. But I hope that five years ago or ten years ago, as opposed to where you are now, you are now in a better place compared to then. It's an ongoing journey. And the role of the church is to pursue holiness together. One of the questions I ask the small groups and ask their leaders to ask their people is, I know you're growing in fellowship or maybe fellowship. You know, they all grow together and they grow sideways together. But the true purpose of fellowship sometimes is to ask yourself this question, are we, as members of a small group, spiritually growing? That's a tougher question to ask. Are we spiritually growing? What does that mean? Am I growing in my desire to be more holy? Am I growing in my desire and ability to read the scriptures, to pray, to spend time in silence with God, to not be distracted by the things of this world, to not feed my appetites? Am I able to do that? And I, maybe it's a good time for me to also ask you, we're coming up to Easter. So Lent is about to begin. One of the things I've decided for myself is I'm spending way too much time on social media. So I'm going to take a, probably, probably take a social media fast. But some of these things, which you intentionally look at yourself, are you doing the Esau thing? You know, I'm dying. I have to eat this. But in eating this, social media, videos, Korean dramas, whatever, boba tea, you eat this and it's destroying you in terms of your identity as a person. That it is drawing you further away from holiness and righteousness. And we want to pursue holiness and righteousness not because we want to feel better about ourselves, say, oh, done, I'm very holy already. No. We do this because when we understand the holiness of God, we begin to understand how much our sin grieves God. You're more likely to succeed when you know that the thing that you're doing is grieving the one that you love. We can say that the same about our significant others, our partners, our loved ones. You're more likely to do what is right and good 
when you know how much that activity grieves your wife, your children, your significant others. Love, in a way, helps us to pursue this holiness. So in the small group, will you encourage each other to pursue this holiness and to reflect, what do I need to give up as my appetite, the things that have been distracting me from being holy and godly? What is it? At least for this 40 days, it takes 40 days to break a habit. Try that. Lastly, make every effort to live in peace. In peace, shalom, with each other and to be holy. Do what it takes to pursue holiness. What does it mean again? To be morally blameless and to live a life that is consistent to one that has been separated out to whom you have been consecrated to. In other words, to live for Christ in a way that Christ is obey His commandments, love Him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, it's so easy for us to be distracted and to pursue the appetites and assume that we are dying if we do not have our fill. And yet you, O oh Lord, are the source of all holiness and Christ and Christ alone makes us holy and able to approach the throne of mercy. As we come, Lord, to communion, as we remember his body given to us and his blood shed for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord, sanctify us, make us holy, Lord, and help us to encounter the presence of God in our lives that we may trust in your promise and know the value of what it means to be ever in the courts of your holiness. We commit this to you, Lord, praying and asking this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.